Support for Speaking of Travel comes from Asheville Regional Airport, Western North Carolina's gateway to the world. And when you fly home, you're home. Asheville Regional Airport. Take the easy way out. Visit flyavl.com to plan your next trip. And Prestige Subaru, offering a variety of new and pre-owned all-wheel drive Subarus. Built with the zero landfill promise, all waste is recycled or reused with more at PrestigeSubaru.com. And Asheville Rooftop Bar Tours. Experience Asheville on a whole new level on a guided rooftop tour. Enjoy history, award-winning rooftop bars, gorgeous views, and van-chauffeured transportation. Tours daily, year-round, with cover and heated rooftop areas. Find out more at AshevilleRooftopBarTours.com. Welcome to Speaking of Travel with Marilyn Ball. Sit back and be carried away to places around the world and right here in our own backyard. No passport required. Hi, this is Marilyn Ball, and you're listening to Speaking of Travel right here on News Radio 570 WWNC. Now be sure to visit the Speaking of Travel website, that's speakingoftravel.net, and you can sign up for the Travel Club and receive some really great travel news and travel tips and even some really awesome upcoming vacation destination opportunities. And remember, you can always listen to this episode of Speaking of Travel or any past episode with a simple click on the Speaking of Travel website, on the iHeartRadio app, on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much any platform has Speaking of Travel, which means you can listen anytime, anywhere in the whole wide world. And, you know, I know for me that when I travel, it's always nice to have some kind of a phrase book or a guidebook to equip me with enough knowledge to at least be able to order some food and maybe track down some attractions. But I also found that to really get under the skin of a place, I like to read a book, like a novel, about a certain place and understand and learn about the history. Maybe there's intrigue. Maybe there's something about the culture, maybe a, a mystery, just to just to bring you into that place and let your mind travel for you. Well, you know, with my trip to Italy booked for later this year, I was really excited to find out about a new novel about Italy. And I, I have to say, I have virtually disappeared into another a whole nother world while I've been reading it. Turn to Stone is the latest book by author Jim Siskin, James W. Siskin, Jim to his friends. And Jim, I'm going to call you Jim, uh, is the author of the Anthony and McCavity award-winning Ellie Stone series. And I'm really excited to have you on the show, Jim. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Marilyn. So when I found out about Turn to Stone, I was intrigued. Tell me a little bit about um, how this even came, this idea came to be for you. Well, I had spent um, a great deal of my career uh, in Italy and uh, dealing with things Italian. Um, I studied uh, Romance languages in, in at college and uh, in grad school, um, and <clears throat> After working in the photo news industry in New York for a couple of years, uh, I landed at uh, New York University 
at the Casa Italiana, which is the Italian cultural center at NYU. Um, at the time, it was in its infancy, but it um, it has uh, today. It's a thriving uh, center with with all kinds of cultural activities planned throughout the week and throughout the uh, throughout the year. But uh, so at that time, I was I was you know using my uh, you know my studies, what you know my degree actually for what it had been intended uh, to do, which was to you know study Italian and to you know deal with Italy. Um, so there were many trips to uh, Italy, mostly. Uh, Florence, uh, because NYU at a certain point inherited a huge uh, uh, um, kind of a property that uh, that housed four villas within the city of Florence, um, and uh, they were owned by an English uh, expatriate kind of aristocrat who had been born and lived in Florence his whole life. Um, and when he he was um, um, you know planning his estate, he uh, decided to leave the, the, that property to NYU. So, you know, there were there were just fascinating things about the property, and a lot of that went into uh, the, the the villa that that I've uh, created in this book, the fictional villa. Although not exactly the same, um, because there were other uh, villas outside of Florence that I visited over the years uh, that, that just kind of inspired me. And I wanted to write a book about an, an American's experience uh, in. In Florence and in Italy. Um, now, my main character, Ellie Stone, is a is a small town newspaper journalist, uh, newspaper reporter, to be more accurate, probably in the early 1960s. But she comes from New York City, from a very um, well educated and cultural family. Her father had been um, a professor of, of comparative literature and Italian and Dante. So she grew up with Italian all around her, and this was kind of a fun character for me to create because. I didn't exactly grow up with that situation, <laughs> but um, I love the idea of, of her knowing some Italian uh, and knowing and you know being able to manage fairly well with it. And she brushes up on her Italian in advance of this trip, which um, which is organized to uh, it's a symposium, an academic symposium, and her father is is going to get a posthumous award. So the organizers have invited Ellie. Uh, so she she shows up in Italy just in time to find the um, organizer of the whole event has been found drowned in the Arno, in the Arno River, um, and Ellie never even has a chance to meet him. So, um, so that's the general setting um, of of the book. Um, I also wanted to I, I really must add that um, I was fascinated by uh, the structure. Uh, of a certain uh, a very famous work of literature from the uh, from the 15th century uh, uh, by uh, Giovanni uh, Boccaccio, and it's called the Decameron, and it's um, it's been made into some, I think, some movies here and there. Um, it's a, it's a collection of a hundred stories. Some of them are quite bawdy. Um, it's a lot like uh, the, um, um, you know, it's a, it, it's a there are. Um, well, the setup is is that there are ten friends. Um, it's a lot like the Canterbury Tales, by the way, just uh, to give you a frame of reference. It's, so in this book, there are ten friends, ten young friends, um, who um, are trying to, or they're eager to escape the the rage, the raging uh, plague that is, you know, happening in thirteen. I'm sorry, this is the 14th century, not the 15th century, 1348 in in Florence. And so to do that, they decide, why don't we, you know, get out of the city where we're in such close quarters with sick people and we'll go out to the fresh air of the country 
So they, they go up to Fiesole, which is just above Florence. Uh, it's a beautiful, idyllic spot. And they basically settled into a villa. And with nothing else to do for 10 days, the 10 friends each uh, tell a story every day. And there's a king each day who decides the topic. And they do this just to, um, to you know, have to, just to amuse themselves, uh, to make the t- have the time pass. So I wanted to imitate that in this book. Now, I couldn't write 100 stories. Um, that would just be, obviously, that would be a, a huge project to take on. But I did um, want to mimic that structure. So what I did was, after this symposium that I described earlier, where the uh, the organizer has been found dead, um, uh, he had originally planned for all of these young people who were his students and his younger colleagues who helped him organize the symposium, he wanted to give them a gift of a weekend in the country afterwards after the symposium. Now, they decide to go on with it because it was uh, something that that, pro- that professor had wanted. So they end up in the countryside, even though, you know, they're, they're, there are mixed feelings about it, as the man has just died. Um, and so they do go out to the country. Uh, but uh, soon enough, um, there's a suspected outbreak of rubella, or German measles. And this is 1963. So there was no there was no vaccine for rubella at that time, and it it did carry potentially, um, you know, kind of devastating uh, uh, birth defects if if uh, say if a woman were, were pregnant. Uh, but otherwise, the the um, the, uh, the symptoms could be rather mild, just maybe some itching, maybe a low grade fever. Um, so there's this suspected outbreak, and this is what I use to trap these people in a quarantine in that villa. Uh, and I thought that that would be a fun setting for a murder mystery. So here are these 10 people who knew the man who died. Ellie is basically our detective. She's a, she's a newspaper reporter and a, and a kind of a fun character all around, I think. And, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a book that involves a lot of eating and drinking and telling stories and, you know, flaring tempers and, and, and old secrets bubbling to the surface. Well, I am totally intrigued, and like I said, as I started to read it, it is just the type of story that keeps you on your toes. When we come back, Jim, I want to talk more about the food. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. This is Marilyn Ball. You're listening to Speaking of Travel. Hi, this is Kay with Asheville Rooftop Bar Tours. Our tour company in Asheville, North Carolina, is capturing the hearts and imaginations of locals and visitors alike. Each of our rooftop bar tours offers up Asheville's breathtaking scenic beauty and historic landmarks, award-winning rooftop bars serving up sample cocktails and mocktails, plus intriguing Asheville history, all from the rooftops. We have daily tours and we're open year-round, and transportation is included. Learn more by visiting AshevilleRooftopBarTours.com. Every story has its beginning, a starting point from which it wanders the long and winding road, weaving its way toward the final word. It is on this road where the greatest moments often lie, where memories are made, lessons are learned, and where experiences can be valued forever. Each story is a journey, blind to what lies ahead and conditioned by the road behind. While the destination may or may not be known, each journey is unique, unfolding in the moment and defined by those at the wheel. Regardless of where your journey takes you, it remains yours to create. Embrace the journey. Find your ride at PrestigeSubaru.com. This is Tina Kinsey with Asheville Regional Airport and a tip for you. During cold and flu season, it's important to take extra precautions to keep yourself healthy while traveling. 
A few things I like to do, especially when I fly during cold and flu season, are carrying sanitizing wipes with me. These are great for cleaning tray tables, armrests, seatbelt buckles, and even remote controls in your hotel room. Think about the items most touched or handled by others before you and take a moment to give them a scrub. I take extra care to wash my hands often and avoid touching my face. I like to stay hydrated and avoid alcoholic beverages when flying, and sometimes I'll even load up on vitamin C before a trip. Be vigilant and you can prevent illness from ruining your trip. For more information about Asheville Regional Airport, including answers to many frequently asked questions, visit flyavl.com. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring is like on... Welcome back to Speaking of Travel. I'm your host, Marilyn Ball, and I am here today in the studio talking to Jim Siskin, James W. Siskin, that's Z-I-S-K-I-N. Excuse me, he just wrote uh, Turn to Stone. Uh, We've been talking about that, a book that uh, takes place in Italy in the 60s. And Jim, you had made reference in the first segment when you were talking about Ellie Stone and her life of uh, privilege in a way of having uh, the life that she led as as she grew up. Tell me a little, and you kind of laughed and said, you know, tell me a little bit about you and and how uh, you grew up. Did your family travel when you were young? Uh, well, I grew up in a, in a small upstate New York town, and it's the town that um, it doesn't really appear in this Ellie Stone book. This is number seven in the series. But she's, she is a newspaper reporter in a place that I called New Holland, New York. And it's based in almost, well, not exactly, on my hometown of Amsterdam, New York. It's an upstate town near Schenectady, near Albany. Um, and um, so I took this New York City girl, and it's early 60s, and, I, and she wanted to be a newspaper reporter. And this is the job that was offered to her. So she goes to this kind of provincial setting and sets up, you know, there. And, of course, she's constantly fighting for recognition and, and respect from the uh, publisher of the paper. But so it was based on that small, small town. Uh, my family traveled around the U.S. Uh, quite a bit when I was young. But um, I started at a fairly young age, at 16. Um, I went to France for the summer for a summer uh, uh, a French course uh, to study. And I kind of researched it and found it myself. In um, I don't even remember. It was some... Um, I think it was the New York Times Magazine on Sunday back in the in the mid seventies when they I, I don't think they do anymore but they used to have a lot of these small little ads uh, in the back for things like you know study programs and uh, and chartered planes for traveling abroad for a cheap price that kind of thing and there I met a, a group of young Italians in in France that summer who were also studying French and they were my age and we became friends. The following summer, I went back and I traveled kind of the, you know, the stereotypical way with a, with a backpack, basically, on trains. And, and I visited a lot of them in Italy. And that's when I first started learning Italian. So my love affair with Italy and, and Italian goes back to uh, the mid to late 70s. 
So, and my first trip to Florence, I think was, it was over 40, it was 40, 41 years ago now. Um, hate to think of that sometimes, but it, it's been a long time. And, uh, and after, and through all that, just many, many trips, both professionally and privately to, to Italy and, and just, uh, Florence was my second home for many, many years, uh, especially when I was working, uh, in, in New York. You must have really been right in the, uh, thick of things back then to be a part of that culture and have that be something that you took with you as you grew up. And tell me a little bit about, so after college, did you, did you travel then? When did you start writing? Let's talk about that, your literature. When did well, you, in your novels? Yes. Well, I, my, the first book I ever wrote, I was, I was 12 years old and it was as bad a book as a 12 year old would write, you can imagine, but it was a historical book, a historical novel, historical novel set in the first world war in France. And uh, I've always had this interest, really, in, in 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 European cultures, and especially French and Italian. So it was a terrible book. And then I, uh, you know, went to college, and during college, I wrote a second book, uh, which was a little less terrible. It was a lot less terrible. I mean, it was it was, but still not very good. In graduate school, um, I wrote uh, a huge historical novel set in France in the uh, Second World War, uh, and then I ran out of World Wars. So. Um, it was, and it was a little bit better still, but still not very good. Um, and then, um, you know, I got a job and I was working for a French uh, photo news agency, producing news stories and photographs that were sold in um, magazines and newspapers around the world through the network. Um, and, um, and for many years, I didn't write anything um, until um, sometime in the 90s. I thought, you know, I, I, I got on a kick of reading. I I, I remember very well. It was like Dick Francis, I think, who got me started. Um, I just loved his books about horse racing and the mysteries and the murder mysteries surrounding that world in, in, in that world. And then, you know, I revisited the classics, you know, the Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, uh, you know, books like that. And, um, and I said, I, I want to try writing one of these. So I did. And I got an agent. And th- that book was much better than the others. I got, I managed to get an agent, uh, but we never sold that book or the next book that I wrote. And finally, um, I wrote a third book uh, for her, and and she didn't like that one. It was a different character. And so I said, you know, I was feeling, oh well, I'll just get another agent. And so we parted company uh, amicably. And um, and then it was about fifteen years more until I got another agent. So, um, you know, I, career got in the way, life got in the way. I got married. I moved to Los Angeles. I had a, a big job with a with a, in the subtitling industry. So again, I got to use my language, um, uh, you know, training. Uh, I wasn't doing the translations myself, but we had offices all over the world, and uh, and I got to travel a lot to again to Florence by chance. One of the offices was in Florence. Uh, we set up one in India. Uh, we had an office in in London and in Montreal. So uh, I got to do a lot of travel and meet a lot of interesting people and work on you know or deal with interesting movies. You know everything from Citizen Kane to uh, to Jackass. We did we did all of that stuff. Well, you're living the dream there, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I want to ask you about uh, well your your love of language obviously comes through in your in your writing and i'm curious how 
So when I'm reading an English language novel and there's foreign language words kind of thrown in, what's your what's your take on that? How much is too much? How much is just right? What's your experience with that? I've given that a lot of thought. And um, because, you know, I've had experience watching movies and I think we all have. Think about like those old movies from the 60s and 50s when the Americans go abroad and you know, everybody always seems to speak English in those movies. And, and I get, I understand why. Because from a narrative point of view, how, how are you going to, to, to tell a movie without boring people if, if somebody's constantly struggling to find the words to speak the foreign language? So the local love interest, you know, Rosano Brazzi or whoever, uh, you know, he's going to speak English, even though sometimes it sounds like he doesn't really understand the words, the words he's saying. But there's always the little street urchin that somehow gets befriended by the American character. And this street urchin has remarkably good English somehow um, and speaks really fluently with, with a broad vocabulary, but somehow doesn't know the word yes in English. And so we'll say things like she or we, you know, if it's in France or if it's in, in Spain or in Italy. And it's, I always found that as, it, that always struck me as, as, as phony. So what I wanted to do here was to avoid the tedium of Ellie having to struggle for words. Uh, and so I gave her a reasonably quite a good level of Italian, just not perfect. I mean, she has holes in her Italian, holes in the vocabulary, as, as anybody, and anyone would who didn't grow up there. But then you, you have to convey the, uh, the language spoken in English, since this is an English language uh, book, with the understanding, kind of the tacit understanding with the reader that they are speaking Italian here. Um, even though, and, and if they're not, I mentioned it throughout the book. I'll say sometimes he switched to English because some of the characters speak a reasonably good English. Um, and, but Ellie probably speaks Italian better than most of them speak English. So it, I look at it, I always feel it's kind of a seasoning, the foreign words. They really help to set the scene if you can put in a few foreign words, but not words like yes. I think it's just too simple a word. So I try to to uh, put the words in in a way that can be understood by the reader, or I somehow give a, a translation by in context. Let's say the next person says, "Really, uh, he said he wanted to kill him, or something." You know, not that that's in the book, but something like that, kind of a repetition, and that helps sometimes uh, to pepper the the story with the foreign words, but not overdo it. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. When we come back, I want to talk more about. Uh, Ellie Stone, get to know her a little bit better, and and what's up for you coming up in the future. Thank you. This is Marilyn Ball. I'm here talking to Jim Siskin. We're talking about Turn to Stone, and we'll be right back. Green is good. Local food, less oil. Renewable energy, sustainable peace. Tree hugger. Say no to GMOs. Be kind to animals, don't eat them. Go solar, coexist. Don't buy a dog, rescue one. Keep Asheville weird. We just read the bumper stickers on the back of a Subaru. Welcome to Subiville, Prestige Subaru. On the web at PrestigeSubaru.com. With 50 flights every day to and from cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, and Chicago, you can fly to hundreds of worldwide destinations with one easy connection. Choose Allegiant, American, Delta, Elite, or United right here from Asheville Regional Airport. And when you fly home, you're home. Asheville Regional Airport. Take the easy way out. 
Hi, I'm Kay, the founder and owner of Asheville Rooftop Bar Tours. We enjoy showing you Asheville from a bird's eye view. We're so excited to announce our new experience tours. We're teaming up with some amazing local businesses to offer a -a one-of-a-kind tour experience. Create your own marble piece of art on our Make-A-Craft, Drink-A-Craft tour with Magic Studios. Or how about the thrill of axe throwing on our rooftop chilling and kicking axe tour with Axeful Throwing Club. To find out more about these special, limited-time-only tours, visit AshevilleRooftopBarTours.com. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring is like on Welcome back to Speaking of Travel. I'm your host, Marilyn Ball, and it is time to catch up with our fellow traveler, Doc Lawrence, as he takes us along the Gourmet Highway. And guess what? Today, Doc is in Miami Beach for the 2020 South Beach Wine and Food Festival, a national star-studded five-day destination event that showcases the world's most renowned wine and spirits, producers, chefs, culinary personalities, and Doc Lawrence. Hey, Doc, I know this is your favorite place. You go there every year. I heard that it now attracts more than 65,000 people, but I know you, you're number one. Marilyn, I hear that it's cold and rainy throughout the country, particularly where we both are from. But you know, there's one place right now where this is not the case. I'm here in South Beach, Miami Beach, the one place where we go annually to enjoy food, wine, and the good life, along with sunshine and fresh air. We're here for the annual South Beach Wine and Food Festival. Marilyn, I've been to all of these in America, these similar ones, and in some in other countries. None of them even begin to compare with this five-day celebration of higher living. We always stay at the beautiful, legendary, super-romantic Fountain Blue, one of the most famous hotels on this planet. Maryland, this gorgeous hotel, has been host to countless celebrities. Jackie Gleason, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., John F. Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, and his roommate, Ann Margaret, don't tell anybody, Joe DiMaggio, Cary Grant, Julia Child, and hundreds of others, and it's packed with them right now. This is our headquarters for a few days in Maryland. You haven't really lived until you come back here, and I know you've been here before. Maryland, when I attended the very first South Beach Wine and Food Festival many years ago, I decided I was going to come back every year, and I've kept that promise. Nearly every one of the famous chefs and winemakers in this country and in many others is starring in one of the dozens of wine dinners wine tastings, and seminars. I even saw NBC's weatherman, Al Roker, this morning at breakfast at the Fountain Blue. He was having a stack of waffles, and they looked delicious. Everything began last night, Maryland, with a beach barbecue hosted by our good friend, Guy Fiore. We had charbroiled lobster and everything you could think of with it. All kinds of meats, seafoods, vegetables, roasted, served with the wines and cocktails that we just dream about. The wine seminars are global events, focusing on Burgundy, the wines of Spain, Italy, and of course, California. One of my favorite events, though, is not so much wine 
is what we use to enjoy wine with. The Crystal Stemware Seminar was hosted by Max Riedel, one of the members of the 500-year-old company that makes, for my money, the very best crystal stemware on the planet. Max showed everyone that cheap glass doesn't do justice to fine wines. Do yourself a favor. It's an act of love. Get some good crystal when you have the next dinner party and serve your wines like you love your guest. Tonight, Marilyn, we're really stepping out. I'm putting on the tropical dinner jacket, the white one, with a black tie and joining wine and food writers as we tour the very best in South Beach. We're going to begin at what I think is the best bourbon bar in America, Yardbird. We're going to start there with cocktails. Then it's random samplings of food, wine, and cocktails until the midnight hour. Moments ago, Marilyn, I spoke with Martha Stewart, who offered a short shout-out to you, Marilyn, and all the fans of this show. So for now, this is Doc Lawrence on the Gourmet Highway in beautiful South Beach, Florida, for Marilyn Ball, and speaking of travel, saying I hope to see you soon in your hometown. Well, Doc, you go eat and drink and continue your support for the future leaders of the hospitality industry. We love you. Remember, travel slowly. And you can follow Doc's journey on the Gourmet Highway by visiting thegourmethighway.com. Well, as I mentioned, I have a trip to Italy booked for later this year, and I couldn't be more excited. And being here today with Jim Siskin and really talking about Italy and I have to say, Jim, that I swoon when you uh, say those Italian words. <laughs> <laughs> so you. you're welcome. Thank you. So a big part of Ellie's story here in um, Turn to Stone is the part of them kind of gorging themselves on fine Tuscan food and just having so much fun eating. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, I went to Italy one time and I, the whole purpose of my trip was to eat risotto. Like Mm -hmm. I had to eat it at every place we went to test it. So food is a huge part of that culture. Tell us a little bit about how that all played in for you. Yeah. And and speaking of risotto, um, when, um, uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to Lake Como uh, for um, a, a, a week, and uh, we also spent a couple of days in Milan. And um, just, you know, I, I had had risotto milanese before, but I just said, wow, I've got to learn to make this when I go home. And so ever since, really, I, I make it regularly in addition to the other kinds of risotto that I sometimes make. But the food in this book, um, I'll confess it was a little difficult for me because I'm not a typical, I'm really not a foodie. Um, I love certain foods, but it's, you know, I had to stretch my boundaries for this one to, to, to hopefully to attract and to interest readers a little bit more because maybe my tastes aren't as, as exotic as, as some other uh, people. My wife, for example, she, she really, uh, I would say she's kind of a foodie. Um, but um, I, I used some historic news. Um, that I that I located from from Florence from that time from um, the late 50s and early 60s from restaurants, and basing a lot of the dishes that are served on on that, I, I had the cook at the villa, who's this kind of culinary genius, 
um, and she's working all by herself with her deaf husband, kind of a big, big, huge man who's stone deaf, uh, who's the servant, and he does, he's the factotum. He does everything else in the house, but this woman takes care of the um, of all the food, and she's been there for you know forty years at the at the villa, and so you know I had fun planning the menus, and I tried clearly I was aiming for Tuscan specialties. So there's a lot of boar, for example, wild boar, cinghiale. Um, and there are, you know, just the the other, you know, just a lot of other dishes and, and different noodles that uh, are different pasta. And I say noodles, different pastas that are native or popular at that time in that area. And I say noodles because I had to be very careful to uh, avoid using the word pasta in this book at least when I was writing in English, because we didn't say pasta in 1963 in the U.S. Uh, we said we said macaroni, we said spaghetti, we said noodles. We didn't we didn't call it uh, that. That was really in the 80s that pasta came into vogue in English. Obviously, in, in Italian, they called it that generically. But um, uh, but again, I'm, I'm writing the book in English, so it was it was a it was a an uncomfortable line to walk. Just, just. I, I was worried that some readers would say, "Who is this idiot who doesn't know that that that's called pasta?" You know, and he's calling it, you know, macaroni, for example, this old-fashioned word. But that's that's what it was. So the they they gather each night and they have food. And in all of my books, there's always a lot of drink. Um, and so there's there's you know local wine, which you know native, you know the Tuscan wines, Chianti, of course. Um, and then there are some spirits and there are some, you know, other Italian uh, drinks and aperitifs. Um, and, and I thought that all of that, and then, of course, each night following the dinner and the, uh, the drinks and the digestives that they, would, that they would have and cigarettes after dinner in the, uh, in, the, in the salone, then they would tell their stories. And those stories touch tangentially on the somehow symbolically or with a wink of an eye on the death of this man, uh, the man who organized the, the symposium. And it piques Ellie's interest more each evening as somebody tells the stories. And I try to inject some humor into those stories. By the way, one last point about the Decameron. Uh, it just occurred to me uh, during the break that, um, you know, the stories, some of them I mentioned are bawdy, but some of them are quite beautiful and, and famous. Um, if you know, um, oh, Henry's uh, The Gift of the Magi, there's an early version, I guess you would call it, of that in the Decameron. Just, um, um, and it's been told, I think, Boccaccio probably stole it as well and borrowed it from somewhere himself. But uh, it's the same thing about the lover giving up the thing he loves most for for the woman he loves most. Uh, but as it turns out, that's the thing she needs to save her son. And uh, and it's just a tragic, beautiful tale. That and, is... uh, I didn't mention that in the book, though. That tale does, does not show up in the book. But so much does show up in the book, Jim. And you really did your homework, I'll say, to ensure that everything is uh, the way that it was back then. And when we come back, I want to talk more about Ellie and and where she's going from here. So this is Marilyn Ball. You're listening to Speaking of Travel. I'm here with Jim Ziskin, the author of Turn to Stone.
The best way to feel the love is to share it. That's why Subaru created the Subaru Share the Love event. Over the last 11 years, Subaru has donated over $145 million to charity. This year, we're continuing the tradition. Right now, when you get a new Subaru, Subaru will donate $250 to your choice of charity partners. The ASPCA, Make-A-Wish, Meals on Wheels, or the National Park Foundation. This year, Prestige Subaru welcomes Homeward Bound WNC and the Asheville Humane Society as our hometown charity partners. The Subaru Share the Love event. Now through January 2nd at Prestige Subaru. Welcome to Subiville. Your business trip shouldn't start with a road trip. Hundreds of global destinations are just one connection away, starting at Asheville Regional Airport. Fly Allegiant, American, Delta, Elite, and United. Asheville Regional Airport, your local connection to the world. Visit flyavl.com to plan your next trip. Hi, this is Marilyn Ball, your host of Speaking of Travel, and I have to tell you the Asheville Rooftop Bar Tour just might be the hottest ticket in town for locals and visitors alike. Kay Bentley and her amazing team at Asheville Rooftop Bar Tours helped organize a group tour for us on a recent Sunday afternoon. We saw a part of Asheville's best views with well-known and new sites to look out over from high above the city. It is, as the name suggests, a tour on top of some of Asheville's fabulous rooftop bars. Sit back and order some handcrafted cocktails, some craft beer, local wines, maybe a small plate of yummy food, while you're learning about Asheville from the early years through historical photos from the late 1800s and early 1900s and hearing stories about what was going on at that time. And then you get van chauffeured to the next rooftop bar stop. It's so much fun. For more information, visit AshevilleRooftopBarTours.com. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars and let me see what spring is like on Welcome back to Speaking of Travel. I'm your host, Marilyn Ball, and we're here with author James W. Ziskin. Jim, we're friends now and <laughs> really loving talking about uh your book, Turn to Stone. Uh, we were saying at the break, and I just want to bring this up real quick because I love the cover so much that Vespa, I just knew it was the the accurate model and everything. You must have done some research about that. Sure. Um, I, I wanted to be sure. You know, the uh, fourth book, fifth book in the series is called Cats the First Stone, and it's set in Hollywood, California. Uh, in 1962, and the publisher came up with a cover that had a Volkswagen van on a California beach, which fit the story because there was a certain character in the book who lived. But it, it, not five minutes after I, I said, hey, here's the cover review uh, reveal on uh, social media, uh, somebody chimed in and said, well, that's, uh, that's from 1968, that Volkswagen model, and your book takes place in 62. And I said, well, what can I do, you know? So for this one, I wanted to be very sure that the Vespa was the correct year, and I did research it and found that this, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but it's it's a late 50s to early, like 1962 model Vespa, just by the by the appearance of the front and, and things like that, I could I was able to to establish that that it was the right vintage. And when I showed it to people like my agent, they said, and, and other friends, they just said, um, other writers, they said, oh yeah, this is, um, this is, Florence. This is Tuscany, isn't it? And and I said, yeah, that's exactly what we want to convey with the cover is the time period. 
and and the location, uh, and it did that just so perfectly. And it's a it's a it's a great photograph, and they did a very nice job on the cover. They did it, they did a beautiful job. I love it. So I want to talk a little bit about um, where where you're heading. Well, first I have a question: How long does it take you to write an Ellie Stone novel? I, I usually manage it in in a year from start to finish writing it and then the review you know the revisions revisions are just so important the, the first draft takes probably four months maybe five if I'm going slowly on this particular book I, I did make a mistake and and began it without an outline I usually work from an outline not a not a very detailed one but just five six pages of this happens and this happens and this happens. You always change that as you write it. I mean, you think up new ideas that are better or, you know, you, you modify it somewhat, but at least, you know, every morning when you sit down, what, you know, you're not staring off into space saying, well, now what should I have happen in the book? You know, at least you know that more or less where it's going. But on this book, for whatever reason, I was, you know, eager to get started. And so I, I didn't have an, uh, an outline and that meant uh, there was a lot of revision at the end instead of at the beginning. There was more revision at the back end of the story, fixing everything that didn't make sense because I changed things. Um, instead of planning it and doing it, you know, a lot more of the, the work on the front end. Uh, but revisions are so important. So I, I, re- I went through complete revisions of this book, I think, nine times. And then there were the editors who uh, also did you know, their edits of the book and their suggestions and then the line editing, which is a word by word thing. So, but typically that takes a year. And I, and for the last, since 2012, uh, 2013, I've been doing a, a book a year. So this is the seventh book. It was the longest one to, to finish. It took about a year and a half. Well, congratulations, Jim. What a lovely, successful uh, career here that you have embarked on that, kind of started out as a side hustle. <laughs> you had your career and then you were just writing and then it all kind of came to this and and being able to use your background and all your travels because you really are a man of the world if you will. You've you've traveled uh all over, lived in India for a while, you lived in California. Uh, you really I have been able to put all of that into something that is um, that feels just right for you. Yeah, um, it's even I've lived well most recently in New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, and now Boston. Uh, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I moved to Boston. But um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I think people get tired of hearing me sometimes brag that I've been I've made fifty-seven separate distinct trips to India in my life over the years. And I lived there for a year and a half and worked there. Um, and, uh, but also just the many other business trips and personal trips to India add up to about four years spent in India with a year and a half actually living there and working there. Um, and it's, um, you know, it is something I love to do, um, travel and, and to, you know, see different, different parts of the world. It's just been, it's a great thing. And as a matter of fact, uh, the next book I'm working on, I'm taking a one one book break from Ellie Stone to write um, a kind of a throwback thriller um, in the 1970s in India. Uh, It's, it's a a foreign, a foreign uh, journalist who is sent to India for his assignment. And, um, 
And when he arrives, it's 1975, and he arrives just as Indira Gandhi declares the national emergency and suspends all civil liberties and throws her political opponents in jail and puts all kinds of restrictions on the press. So here's this this young journalist who shows up in India, all eager to do his job. And in addition to the culture shock, he's he's now kind of handcuffed and not sure, you know, uh, if he's safe to do his job. And then his Indian colleague is is arrested. And so it's it's not one of those um, high-tech thrillers that you see today, but I'd like to think of it more of a, as more of a Graham Greene meets uh, The Great Gatsby uh, on the subcontinent. And I know that's kind of uh, may sound a little bit, um, you know, uh, arrogant of me to compare myself to Graham Greene and to F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald. But if you're going to aim, you might as well aim high. So, well, that's coming next. I am intrigued. Uh, I I find it really just so uh, inspiring that you can pick a pick a time in history and say, I'm going to focus on this. And there was so much going on then that played into the future and being able to come up with that character. I want to make sure, though, Jim, that everybody knows how they can find these Ellie Stone books and and find out more information. So do you have a website or what's your what's your M.O. for getting the word out? Yeah, my website is just jameswziskin.com. But the books are available on any online book portal, so Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, any any uh, of the indie books, all of these things. And also, they should be in many bookstores. You know, distribution is what it is, so it's not going to be in every bookstore. Um, but uh, Barnes & Noble carries it, um, um, most of them. I mean, not all of them. It, it depends on their, you know, sales, uh, whatever they decide to carry in their stores. But... But uh, and independent bookstores as well should uh, you know many of those will stock it. But uh, the books um, again, there are seven. They all have Stone in the title, uh, which is uh, obviously Ellie Stone's name, and they're all based on popular or common expressions with the word Stone in them. Um, I sometimes have people suggesting to me, "Oh, you should call your next title Stoned and have it take place during uh, you know Woodstock or something." And I say, "Well." Woodstock would be an interesting idea, but uh, but stoned is not an expression. It's like so that's why the first book is sticks and stone. The second one is uh, no stone unturned, stone cold dead, cast the first uh, heart of stone, cast the first stone, uh, a stone's throw, and turn to stone. So uh, I think I have about four or five of these good titles left, and then I run out, and I'll have to think of something else. That's right. You will think of something else. So. Do you, is Ellie kind of your, like you, if you were in this fantasy world, your other side? I think she she represents a lot of uh, great, wonderful traits that I admire in people and in women. Um, uh, You probably see them less often, less frequently in men, but um, so it's kind of, she's kind of a, an amalgam of, of those traits that I admire, but she also has her flaws. And she, for example, she she definitely is a high-functioning alcoholic. Um, and I know that can be a cliche in crime fiction, but um, 
well, usually they're broken down alcoholics, but she is a high functioning alcoholic, but she's also young. She's now in her, she's about 27, I think, in this book. Um, and of course, she's smarter than probably most people would ever be. Um, and, you know, we have to suspend a little bit of disbelief to, to make a great character who's fun and smart like Ellie Stone. And you have done that, Jim. And thank you so much for sharing Ellie with us and this new story with her, Turn to Stone. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing to to teach us and and entertain us and um, and share. I think that's a big part of of who you are is that you get to go out and do all these wonderful trips and explorations, but then you share it back kind of like our ambassador in literature. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Marilyn. It was a, it was a pleasure. All right. Well, this is Marilyn Ball. You've been listening to speaking of travel. This is a good, this is a really good week to read a book. Why don't you just settle in with one of Jim Ziskin's books, start with the very first Ellie Stone and make your way up. Go out into the woods, sit under a tree, and dream about where you could be right now. Because remember, life is short. Don't postpone joy. 